Welcome back to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Mark, I'm excited to talk with you today because you have a story to share. But before we get into the story, I have to ask, can you please introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Uh, Robbie, thank you. My name is Mark Music. I'm a retired uh, Major General from the Air Force, and I live in Nebraska. How I got involved with this story was I met a lady in 2002. And her name was Eva McClelland. I was working for a nonprofit and she made contact with the nonprofit and said, I've got some property I want to leave you guys. So I talked to her on the phone several times. And then I knew her, I knew there were strangers involved with this. And I knew her husband had just died about two months before I met her, which would have been November 2001. So she was fa fairly much a new widow at this point in time. And when I met her, Found her to be a very, a very uh, intelligent woman, very comfortable woman, uh, very um, easy to talk to, shall we say. And she said, Mark, there's something I want to tell you. And I think she liked my military background because she knew I was in the military. I think she liked that and felt comfortable with that. And I said, well, Eva, what, what is it that you want to tell me? And she said, I was married to Howard Hughes. Now, at this point, I wish I had a camera on my face because it's kind of like, you are crazy, lady. You are absolutely loony. You are crazy. I want nothing to do with you. And I said, Eva, Howard Hughes died 25 years ago. And her response was, that's what they want you to think. And she started in on her story. And her story began where she met, met a tall, handsome man. She was working in Panama. This was November of 1969. She had a job in Panama, was working there, and she kept seeing this tall, handsome man with AIDS, with AIDS around him all the time doing business. They met. They got to talking to each other. They enjoyed each other's company. And they did some you know, visiting together and things like that. And then in December 1969, he disappears. He's just gone. And Eva thought, well, I enjoyed his name. He said his name was Nick Nicoly. Nick Nicoly. He's gone. In February 70, he returns. They get they again get to talking to each other because they enjoyed each other's company. And so they get to talking to each other. And she says, Nick, why, why were you gone? And he said, Well, I had some business to attend to in the States. Now, Eva was a very intelligent woman. She knew when to ask questions and when to quit asking questions. She said, well, Nick, while you were gone, I felt like I was being followed. And his response was, you were being followed. We checked out everything about you. Now, that probably didn't leave a very comfortable feeling with Eva, knowing this, this man that she had just, just basically met, but enjoyed, enjoyed the time spent with him. March... 1970, he takes her to the nicest jewelry store in Panama and buys her a two-carat diamond ring. They are now engaged. And he says, Eva, there's something I want you to do. And she said, what's that? I want you to sign my name. So he gave her the signature to sign Werner Nicely. Now, it's not Nick Nicoly. Werner Nicely is a signature. She practices it, practices it, practices it. She says, okay, that's good enough. 
she signed every document he needed to sign for the next 30 years. She signed them all. He really wouldn't sign anything. She knows there's strange that's going on here in her life. She doesn't know what is really it's all about. They were married in May of 1970 in Panama. Now, the marriage certificate is interesting because his name is spelled wrong. There's a place there for his parents, which are blank, and her age is wrong. They're now married in Panama. She's beginning to put the pieces together of what is really going on here because she's not seeing everything about it. It took her about two years to figure out, I'm married to Howard Hughes, and he's living under this other identity. And then it took about another two years where he revealed it to her. And then after that, he could ask, she could ask him any question. Uh, his description, he was six foot four, tall man. His hands and his feet were, were damaged in some way from some accident that he had previously. Of course, Howard Hughes was six foot four. And Howard Hughes was in an accident in 1946 and was severely burned. His hands and his feet were severely burned. A couple of things really put the put the put pictures of the puzzle together with for her. And one was in, let me get the right year here. It was in uh, December 1971. December 1971, they're living in Panama, and he is irritated. He's irritated. And, and Eva asks Nick, that's who she referred to, Nick, what is wrong with you? And he said, there's about ready to be a book come out on Howard Hughes, and it's all full of lies. Clifford Irving. Clifford Irving. Eva says, don't you think the public should know about that? Nick now gets this big, huge grin on his face. And it's seven days after that conversation that there is the media coverage of an interview with Howard Hughes and seven respected journalists out of Los Angeles. Of course, they could never track the phone conversation. No phone conversations could ever be tracked. Well, Eva listens to this. This is the big deal now. Howard Hughes is described as a long-haired, long-fingered, drug-addicted, bedridden, mentally incompetent derelict is what he's described up to the media. However, Howard Hughes is now going to give a radio interview, a telephonic radio interview, to six or seven journalists. Eva listens to the story. Eva listens to the broadcast. She recognizes the voice. The voice is Nick. She recognizes this man is my husband. That night, they get back together again. She says, Nick, I heard the broadcast today with Howard Hughes. She said, that was you. And he just smiled. He just smiled. So Eva is beginning to put the pieces to the puzzle together. Of She's really married to Howard Hughes, the richest man in America. She's married to him. And he's living under this other identity. And then it goes on and on. Her stories go on and on, all confirming the story that Howard Hughes took on another identity, lived as another man, and lived well after the the man that died in 1976 was actually a stand-in who was a friend of Howard's who was 20 years older than Howard. 
the media always say this man, the long hair, long finger, no drug addicted guy, he looks 20 years older than Howard. Well, he looked 20 years older because he was 20 years older. And he's the one who died of natural causes in 1976. How much information did you have on Howard Hughes before this story? I knew very little about Howard Hughes. I knew I knew he made movies. He made lots of movies that would have been in the 30s and 40s. He was also big in aviation. And there was a huge aircraft, huge aircraft. There's huge making, building aircraft parts, all kinds of things like that. I also knew that he had done some aviation records. 1938, he flew around the world. I think uh, two days, a little over two days, he flew around the world. He set some land speed records on some aircraft that he had built. But that's about all I knew about him. And other than the strange, strange last six years of his life, which was just really weird, totally weird. But I had not known much about Howard. After Eva approached me with this Howard Hughes story, I began to study up on it and found out, wow, this is strange. Because I'd read books. I mean, he's probably got 50 books written about him. I, I've read everyone I could get my hands on. I own most of them. And even the books have different information in them. But none of them really try to explain the last six or seven years of his life because you just can't do it. You can't explain it. So they go back earlier in his life and talk earlier in his life. Uh, very, very remarkable, very intelligent man. He only had about an eighth grade education. That was it. He never did well in school. The reason why he had a hearing impediment, which was genetic, he was bad at bad on hearing and he used to sit in classroom in the front of the classroom, but he couldn't hear well. So he never really did well in school. Of course, it didn't really matter because the guy had all this capability and was a was a genius, uh, genius mind. Did Eva ever try – like did she have any information on Howard Hughes? Did she ever uncover other details about him like besides the phone call and putting the voice together but other details about his life, um, maybe the burns on his hands or anything like that that would be very noticeable and kind of distinct with only a certain individual? That's a very good question, Robbie, because she – when she was figuring this thing out, she's trying to learn about Howard Hughes and about his life. And so she had read books on him, articles on him, all kind of that things also. And then she did uh, research on him. She had people buy, uh, get her books on Howard Hughes. She went back and also got the medical records of Werner Nicely, the real Werner Nicely. Let's review him a little bit. He was born in 1921 in Ohio and went in the military in 1942 got in aviation and was in aircraft maintenance, mostly in the Pacific during World War II. Married in 1949, I think it was, married in 1949, had a couple boys, traveled around in the military, left the military in 1955. And so Eva went and back and got all of his medical records and all of his military records, which we have, of which she's given me everything to back up this story. So I have all of those records. In 1955, uh, Werner, real Werner, by the way, he was born in 1921 and he was five foot 11 inches tall. So all the records say Werner is five foot 11. And now Werner, nice, he's six foot four. 
He goes to work in 1955 after leaving the Air Force for the CIA. And he goes to work in Panama doing counter-drug operations as well as other things, counter-drug operations in and out of Colombia, the country of Colombia. What Munir's we can put together is he just kind of disappeared about 1967. He just kind of disappeared, but he was working for the CIA. We really don't know what happened to him, whether he was died on a mission, whether he, he is living under some other identity. We don't know. But I did contact his brother and, and his son and got further information from his brother and his son about Werner, all matching what Eva had said. He'd gone into the CIA. He was working for the CIA. His brother last saw him in 1960. Their parents died, I think, 69 and 72, something like that. His brother tried to find Werner, could never find him. And Werner just basically disappeared. Don't have no any idea what was going on with him at that point in time. So then we went and got the medical records of that Ver, that Howard actually used under the name of Werner that he spent some time in VA hospitals and VA domiciliaries. So we have those medical records. And then Howard also was in the VA the later part of his life, which was on uh, 1999, 2000, 2001, he was in and out of the VA in Montgomery, Alabama. We have those records. So we have all of this records that all basically confirm Eva's crazy, crazy story. Now, was there ever an explanation to Eva or something that you came across of why he started to live this other life why he didn't just keep the billionaire lifestyle i mean nobody was able to take pictures of him he was just a recluse he could literally do whatever he want i mean he locked himself if i'm not mistaken in a cinema his own little private cinema thing for like four months and refused to go out and he drank like chocolate milk and chicken i mean despite a little bit of tabloid stories that could be inflated or not that's like a good life you don't have to interact with anybody if you don't want to and you have all the money to be able to spend but living an alternate life after and kind of not faking your own death, but did that person really die? Was there ever an explanation? The explanation comes in bits and pieces. It's kind of like this thousand piece jigsaw puzzle of which we have about 600 pieces, but there's still 400 out there that we don't know about. Eva did figure it out. And if you look at all of those things between about 1969 and 1976, you don't know what the truth is, basically. The public has no idea what the truth is there because it was so convoluted. It was so confusing. There was so much misinformation and disinformation thrown at it that you can't tell what the truth is, which is exactly what Howard wanted. It exactly matched his personality. Eva, of course, by that time, figured it out. He, he had revealed it to her. But some of those stories that, that you hear, take those with a grain of salt. Because you don't know what's true or what's just totally made up. In 1969, what we can put together on this thing is about the time that Howard took this other identity. He was already, he had already changed his looks. He was changing his looks so he would look different than what he looked before because he didn't want people to recognize him. In 1969, he was working with the CIA on a project called... Uh, uh, Project Jennifer, 
which was to raise a Soviet submarine that had sunk 750 miles northwest of Hawaii. So the CIA, nearest we can put it together, in about six, this happened in 68, CIA wanted it raised so they could see what's the communication equipment that's on this, what are previous messages that have been sent out, how do they decode them, things like that. So they went to Howard. Will you raise this submarine for us? Howard said, yes, I'll do it. So Howard built the Glomar Explorer, which at this point in 1969 was the most expensive project the CIA had ever done. The books say it's $350 million. I suspect that's low. But if Howard liked the project, he would throw his own money into it. So he would fund also, in addition to what the government was funding, put his own money into it. Richest man in America, you do what you want to do, right? That's how it all works. And so he went and raised that submarine in 1974. Our speculation, and we say this in the book, our speculation is that he said, Mr. CIA, I'll go raise that submarine. You get me another identity. And they got him the identity of a CIA operative who had disappeared, Werner Nicely. Now, Nick says, well, I got to add more confusion into this, so I'm going to call this guy Nick Nicoly. So now you have really Werner Nicely under identity of, you have Howard Hughes under the identity of Werner Nicely using the name of Nick Nicoly. So can you throw any more confusion in there? Well, it's probably hard to throw more confusion in. But the identity that he took was a man five foot, 11, born in 1921, so he would have been five years younger than Eva, and now he's six foot four and 10 years older than Eva. And Eva's the one who says something's going on here, trying to put the story together. She told me about it. It took me four years to actually believe her. I just didn't believe her. I, I didn't know what to believe. I just did not believe her story. And after four years, I came to the conclusion, this is right. And then we got all the medical records, all military records, everything backing up her story. We have pictures, everything backing up her story in which everything she said was absolutely true. But it was certainly not what the public has ever been told previously. How deep do you think his connections went with the government besides raising a sub? I mean, I start to, I mean, he's a billionaire. He's an anti-communist. He's basically the perfect profile for anybody in the government at that time that wants someone who can literally do anything with all the amount of money that he has. He's perfect. Despite the Spruce Goose scenario and all that that really never got deployed and everything like that, he was obviously contracting for the government. So there was already a pre-existing relationship before the sub thing even took off. I'm just wondering how deep the connections went. I mean, to put you in witness protection, basically. Well, if you look, if you look at other aspects, linkages to Howard Hughes and the CIA, you have the communication satellites. Howard put up the communication satellites for the CIA. Therefore, he used them. You remember that phone call that could never be traced between Howard and the journalists in 1972? Well, they was using the CIA's communication satellites. You're not going to trace them. In fact, the books say they were never, no one was ever able to trace his phone communications. Well, it becomes pretty clear he was dealing with the CIA who's using their their communication systems. So he could use the communication systems. 
because they had the stand-in moving from Las Vegas to Bahamas to Nicaragua to Vancouver to Nicaragua. The stand-in with the long-haired, long-fingernail guy was moving all these different locations. He, Howard and Eva were moving different locations, but they all kept in communication. And Howard was really controlling all of this through his CIA satellite communications. I have learned that, that I remember when I said Howard would fund things that he liked, where evidently I heard this off the side that he also funded the Berlin airlift. He helped fund the Berlin airlift. That was 48, I think. But if, if there's a, if there's a project out there that Howard liked, he would fund it. If there's things Howard didn't like, he would make it clear that he didn't like these things. And one thing that he did not like was the nuclear testing going on in Nevada. This is the late 60s. Howard owns six hotels in Las Vegas, airports, TV stations, acres and acres of Las Vegas mines. Howard probably owned a quarter of the property of Las Vegas or had leases to it. And what are they doing? The government's exploding nuclear weapons out in his backyard. He didn't like that. He was a germaphobe, for one thing. <laughs> he was a germaphobe. And certainly he didn't like nuclear bombs going off, you know, that's going to blow nuclear waste anywhere. He didn't like that. And if you look at uh, 1969, uh, Howard went to Richard Nixon and said, quit exploding these bombs. You know, what are you doing? We don't need these things. I don't want to go on off in my backyard. Quit doing it. Was it Nixon or was it Johnson? It was Nixon. Are you sure? Because it, it would have been 68 would have been Johnson. Well, uh, let me see. Johnson was 60, Right. Uh, I don't have any interaction between Howard and Johnson. Uh, 69 is when I've got uh, quite a bit of information about Howard interacting with Nixon. So that would have been uh, 69 then, but there was a, and, but I don't have, I don't have any information on Howard interacting with, with President Johnson. I just don't have that, but there is lots of information on him interacting with Nixon. And if you look at the bomb, there's a bomb that went off in September of 69. And that is the month that Howard left Nevada under this other identity. That is when he left Nevada and went to Panama, was in September of 69, avoiding that bomb. And that's when Eva met him, sees him about six weeks later. And then they get in conversation shortly after that. So from a timing viewpoint, uh, it matches that, um, that bomb going off in 69, September 69. Have you ever heard of the the John Wayne stuff that with um Howard Hughes? As far as Howard uh, interacting with John Wayne, so J John Wayne was in a film called The Conqueror, um that was a production of Howard Hughes's. Uh, Ninety three cast members on that film set out of the two hundred and twenty four developed cancer and died, and it was because where they were filming their scenes were near the nuclear testing of those weapons and howard hughes became an activist at the start of that 
to really lobby against nuclear weapon test bans. That's where I know him from. He might have spoke to Nixon. I haven't came across that yet. I just remember there's memos uh, offering $50,000 to the president of the United States to stop nuclear test bans. But yeah, it's just, he, that, that advocacy that he had or that thing. I mean, when he left Vegas, like you mentioned, did, did she ever mention anything about health conditions that come with the radiation or anything like that? Because we know John Wayne died of cancer and a bunch of other people did that were on that set. So I was just curious if he had, I don't know, weird spouts of sickness that she would notice besides the burns on his hands and things of that sort. I mean, if you're married to the guy, you probably notice burns on his back and stuff like that. But what about if someone's puking in a toilet or getting severe headaches or something of that sort? Robbie, that's a very good question. It's a his weird health, question, but it's a, it's a different his, one. His when they met, she could tell that he was addicted to something, and she and it was as she found out it was over the counter codeine, uh, cold medicine is what he was addicted to from a painkiller uh, from his hands and his feet and his the uh, damage that he did in that aircraft accident. Of course, this is years later. But she never, there was never any uh, radiation type linkage that, that she explained to me. He did die in 1993. He had cancer on the left side of his head. And that got worse and worse and worse. He would not do anything about it. And she asked him, when are you going to take this care, take care of this, take care of this? But the cancer on the left side of his head, uh, got worse and worse and worse and that's kind of one of the reasons why he got his health was so bad and he died then in 2001 but we do know that he contracted cancer from that way uh, but but she never mentioned anything that and i wouldn't i was not uh aware of this john wayne film linkage no, it's that's a very bad film it's it's not a good he plays genghis khan which is a <laughs> it, it didn't work out it's literally if you look up the movie it's ranked everywhere as like the top rated worst film ever and actually howard hughes bought up all the copies of it um to try and i don't, I don't know if he watched it we all know he liked ice station zebra but it, 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 it is interesting on movies he started making movies in the 30s and made a bunch of bunch of movies but what I've learned on the movies is the more he was involved with it, the worse it did. Yeah. So if, if he just let the producers produce and the actors act, the movie came out fairly well. But if he got involved with it, um, it, it didn't turn out well. His his most successful company was the, the company his dad made with the um the drill bit. Everything else kind of ended up crashing and burning just because he micromanaged so much, which is, I mean, if you're a billionaire and you are, you know, he's definitely a take charge person, which I'm I'm just interested if Eva ever expressed an interest deeper after her husband died. If she started looking in and trying to understand, maybe I can learn more about who this person is or maybe a different side of this person that I wasn't shown. I don't think she looked at that afterwards. I think she was going through that while she was married to him. Because there would be times when she couldn't put up with him anymore. And she would just leave uh, for months at a time. She would just leave. But she knew there's somebody always watching her. And there's somebody always kind of protecting her, watching over to make sure nothing bad happened to her. And then they'd always get back together. 
And if you look at these periods when she was gone, those were the periods that he would go to England and fly airplanes in the summer. That'd be the summer of 73. He'd go to England and fly airplanes. They were gone. There was times when he would do his business dealings. When all the business dealings happened in the books, there are periods when they were gone. So there was a lot of stuff in there that she got tired of his personality because it was, he could go from a very, very charming man to this a verbally vicious man, just very, very quickly. And so she had to be very, very careful on what she would say and, and things like that. That from what I've learned of his business dealings, he would think he would talk to his about three or four people is who he would talk to. And that was it. But he'd think out loud. And so he'd be thinking of doing something and and but he'd think out loud to them. They sometimes took it as direction. He wants me to go do this thing. And then they go and do it. He'd come back and say, well, why would you do that? And he said, I didn't tell you to do that. And what he finally told him was, unless I tell you 10 times, don't go do anything. I'll tell you 10 times, and then I want it done. So he kind of had that, that um, uh, trait of going through his mind of what he wanted to do, but it really wasn't necessarily what he wanted to do at all. And so he was hard to work for. But he paid them so well. <laughs> he paid the people so well that they would never think of going to work for anybody else because they're, you know, making 10 times what they can make at any other job out there. What were you able to uncover personal items wise when it came to the Howard Hughes life that Nick Nicoly might have left behind? Like, did Eva find boxes or find any documentation besides the stuff she had to go find on her own? But just photos i mean god i would have photos of jane russell all in my little storage box wherever i kept it and we all know that was a a crush of howard hughes's well howard had i think some pretty good hiding places uh i do have some paraphernalia of howard's uh he always wore gloves i think for several reasons they lived out in alabama i think for several reasons one to keep his hands clean another one so he wouldn't leave fingerprints and then the third one was was hands were damaged. They were they were burned during the aircraft accident. So, but Eva said he was all always 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 wore gloves. We do have one picture of him without gloves, and you can see in that picture that his hands were damaged in some way. We have um, several pictures of him uh, that Eva took. We have some of his clothes. We have some things like that. Uh, we have some other paraphernalia of of Howard's that that I have, but we don't have uh, a lot of his records. There was a room in the, their their trailer in Alabama that he had his records in, a bunch of records in there anyway, and one day they just disappeared. Uh, they were just gone. And so Eva doesn't know what what happened to him, uh, but he had a way of things just being gone, just disappearing. And when you're living out there in a very remote area in Alabama, uh, people would come visit him. They would come and they would meet with him. There'd be times when he'd be gone all day long. 
And Eva said, well, at the evening, Eva said, well, Nick, where, where were you today? I didn't see you all day long. And he said, well, I, I fell out of a tree and I lost consciousness most of the day. Well, Eva knew that was a story. You know, that was, that was a line. But he had contact. He maintained contact with people throughout most of the rest of his life while he was hiding away there in Alabama. He was in contact with uh, other individuals. Why didn't he just say he took a nap or something? That like falling out of a tree and going unconscious is definitely going to demand a follow up question to that one. Well, I, I think Eva just let that go. I mean, <laughs> she just, she just. I mean, what? How do you even respond to that one? Uh, before he, before 1976, the man who died in 1976 was a stand-in. He was the friend of Howard's, who was was a drug addict, and they provided him drugs and so forth to the rest of his life. The funeral was interesting. The funeral was at the funeral service they had for Howard Hughes, richest man in America, richest man in America. They had a four-minute funeral, a four-minute funeral. Who was there? Uh, there's about 23 people. There, 22 were cousins of his, most of whom he had never even met or could have cared less about. The only other person that was there was a CIA agent a cia operative and obviously this gentleman's task was to get that body in the ground as quickly as possible because that body is not howard hughes get that in the ground as quickly as possible and it was in the ground in less than 48 hours after his death it's kind of like it was there and it was buried now there were no aids you know, there have been aides that took care of him for years. There's no aides there. There's no business acquaintances there. There was no managers there. There's no doctors there who took care of him for years. Nobody. It's kind of like, how do you get this body in the ground as quickly as possible and make the story go away? And that's exactly what they did was that. So that's an interesting aspect there of the end of his life and Eva and Nick at this point in time were living in a little house west of Troy Alabama I think it's highway 29 about eight miles west of Troy Alabama Eva now knows I'm married to Howard Hughes the aides who were always with them through all of this years was was living down the road about half mile in another little house and the aides would come visit Nick They'd come visit him and therefore communicate back and forth as he wanted to. They're, they're listening to the radio because he wouldn't let Eva have a TV. He said, TVs are worthless. There's nothing of value on a TV. We're not going to have one. So they're now listening to the radio about Howard Hughes' death. And Eva knows this guy died isn't Howard Hughes because she's living with Howard Hughes. So Eva says to Nick, she says, the public's going to realize that there's something very, very wrong with this situation because they're trying to get the body in the ground too quickly. Nick says to Eva, you really know who your friends are when you fake your death and you see who shows up at the service, which was 22 cousins and one CIA operative. So that's their dialogue. 
after this occurrence now, the aids disappear. The aids go away. There's no longer aids monitoring them. Prior to this, they were going to town. They'd go into Troy, Alabama. They'd have lunch. He'd like to go to the hardware store, so forth. They would go there. I knew the aides were following her because sometimes Eva would go into town. And let's say she had a flat tire going into town. Within two minutes of the flat tire, someone would be right there, change the tire, not say a word, and be gone. So Eva knew that there's people monitoring her all the time. And Howard, Nick, told her, you need to be careful because you could be kidnapped. So she had this I could be kidnapped thing going on in her mind for years. I could be kidnapped because I have knowledge that is important. And someone might want to Nick to pay for it. You know, pay for that knowledge to, to get me back. So that, that's some a little bit of the dialogue that was going on in the mid-70s between Eva and Howard, Eva and Nick. And then Nick and his network of business people and control that he contained until 1976 when the standard died. Did Eva ever explain any other concern for Howard Hughes's reputation from Nick besides the phone call and denouncing the biography, but anything like the Mormon will that ended up coming out with Melvin Dumar? Uh, that story, I mean, that's everyone's obviously after, I mean, if you believe it or not, I mean, I, I tend to be on the agnostic side of it. It's an interesting story, fits his personality, but like, like you mentioned in the beginning, there's a lot of stories that come out about Howard Hughes that might be necessarily either fictitious or might have some truth to it, but it makes his eccentric character. But I'm curious if Nick ever really was caught trying to rationalize or explain or deal with a situation that came to Howard Hughes's reputation. I mean, he did have a really good uh, career aviation wise and in entertainment industry. And I think we only remember the bad stuff at the end. Well, there's a couple of things come to mind here. Um, one thing is when I started working with Eva on this story, like I said, it took me four years to believe it. I just didn't believe it. I just didn't think there's no way. What you're telling me is possibly be true. And then I came to believe it. Um, I asked her when we we're putting a book together, we we're writing a book. I said, Eva, why do you want this book out? And first of all, she said, I don't want it out while I'm alive because she was a very paranoid lady. I don't want it out while I'm alive. So we had to wait till she passed away, which we did. But I asked her, why do you want this book out? And she said, that funeral activity in 1976 was such a disgusting event that was so disgusting that the public needs to know what the real truth is about howard hughes uh the genius and that did not do it and so that's why we put the book out because eva wanted basically the truth uh the truth out there and everything in that book is is true uh, we speculated in there, but we say we're speculating. But everything else, there's nothing that's not true in that book. That's not what the public's been told. The Melvin Dumar, I'm glad you brought that up because that's a that's a weird, weird story in itself. The story behind that is that 
December 1976, I'm sorry, 1967. December 1967, Melvin DeMar was traveling into Las Vegas and finds a man along the roadside, randomly finds a man along the road. Uh, It's cold out. It's very cold. If this man would have stayed there, he would have probably frozen to death. Melvin gets him in the car, takes him into Las Vegas. And they don't have a whole lot of interaction there. But there's some. And the man ultimately says, you know, I'm Howard Hughes to Melvin DeMar. Of course, Melvin's probably thinking, yes, sure. (laughs) Sure, you bet. Going in, he drops him off at at a hotel there. And that's the end of that's the end of it. Howard now dies. The story goes like this. There's someone, Melvin's working at a gas station up in northern uh, Nevada or Utah. I don't remember exactly where it was. Working at a gas station. And someone brings in a document and leaves it on the counter. And it's ultimately a will, a Howard Hughes will. And then there's a story that there's a story that's made up about it. Melvin comes to the court and tries to explain what he did, and he lied. You know, he just lied about it. Well, nobody believed him. If he had probably told the truth, maybe someone would have said, you know, there's some might be some truth to this, but that's not what he did. And about this time, 30 people were coming forward with wills. The, the, the country's looking for who's got the will of Howard Hughes. So 30 people come forward and say, I've got the will of Howard Hughes. The courts rule none of these are legit. None of them are legit. Therefore, he dies without a will. Therefore, the money in his estate, richest man in America, he's got a pretty good estate, goes to who? The 23 cousins who were at the funeral. The cousins now fight for decades over that money. What we think, we don't know if this for sure, but we think that that will, that Melvin Dumar will, that Mormon will, is the one that Howard wanted. We think that's the one, is the one that he wanted, because there's some things that kind of lead you down that path. However, Melvin lied about it. The courts can't decide anything that's legit. And it went down a path of cousins. Here's your portion of the money. I think the IRS got the biggest portion because Howard, you know, wasn't intended on paying taxes to anybody. They always get the biggest portion. So I think the IRS got the biggest portion. The lawyers then got the next portion and the measly, you know, millions that were left over went to the went to the cousins. That was interesting because Howard history says Howard had no children. History said Howard has no children. Well, one came forward, her name's Cindy. She's in, the, she's in the book. We have two children in the book. One came forward, Cindy, and she actually tried to introduce papers into the court that, hey, I'm a biological child of Howard's. You know, what about me? And her papers were stolen, disappeared. She lost all evidence that she even existed. So when the truth comes forward, to enter that into this court dealings, they are just shunned. 
they are threatened and they are taken out of it because the 22 cousins, you know, got the money. Basically, that's how it all turned out. Uh, so I, it, this doesn't represent a very good picture of our court system. Uh, this Howard Hughes at all. He doesn't represent a very good picture of our court system. It's pretty ugly. Without being from that. kind of nefarious about it, but do you think that it was somebody involved in one of Howard Hughes's companies or businesses that was being able to mess with the courts a little bit? To, I mean, how could you have this much where so many people are just denying, 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 and it can't be on the essence of everyone's trying to come out of the woodwork for money? I, you can't, you know, for a court to rule that on so many cousins and rule that on people that might be coming out with documentation. And I've noticed this. I saw the Melvin Dumar story has been making a kind of a 180 from its original decision of it being false. Uh, so now it possibly could be true and it was written off a little too early. And I go, there had to be someone that was working in either one of his corporations that was not interested in having his estate or any of these types of financial gains that Howard Hughes has go to some random person. They probably would want it for themselves. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to speculate on that because uh, I don't know the details of it, but I do know that if Howard wanted influence, he just bought people off. He just bought people off and it's happened time and time and time again. And that's how he got influence. He had the money to do it. The government was behind him, and that's what he did. But I don't know any specifics on that. Did he, Eva ever express any hobbies or interests that Howard or Nick had that might have been similar or might have just been extremely different? Like, did he still keep the germophobia? He was a germophobe his whole life. Yes, all through all through the end of his life, he's a germophobe. If they would go walking, let's say in a parking lot, and there was an oil stain there. He would say, Eva, stay away from the oil stain. You know, just stay away from the oil So he was a germaphobe all his life. And, and she got, she picked it up also uh, on that. As far as hobbies, he liked um, mechanical magazines and he liked tools. He was a mechanical guy. His mind worked mechanically. And so he liked, uh, he would buy tools and things that he liked to use. And Eva said they're always of the highest quality. But he, he liked, uh, and he would talk about um, engines, airplanes. He talked about trucks. He talked about anything mechanical to anyone who, who would talk to him about it. There's a neighbor there who would relay that he loved to go talk about truck engines and he was a genius he i mean he knew everything there is about truck engines but he also uh, was very knowledgeable of aircraft aircraft design he designed air he designed his own aircraft he designed uh multiple aircraft and he was a consultant to the government on designing aircraft also so he had a very very mechanical mind that was used to benefit those projects that he uh, appreciated or that he thought should be moved forward when did you but but but, but i'd say a, a hobby was was uh was uh machinery he loved understanding machinery 
when did you drop the story on Doug's desk? Like, what was his reaction to that when you were able to be like, hey, I got a story for you. I don't know if you ever heard the name Howard Hughes, but. Now, that's a really good question. I was I, I, I came to believe her in 2006. And I started putting the story together. I started writing the story together. And it was so many different aspects of it. There's about five storylines running parallel through this whole mixture. And I was having problems interacting at all. And so I told a, a friend of mine who was in the military about what I got and what I was trying to do. And I said, I, I need someone to help me intertwine all of these stories. And he said, well, I might, I might have an idea. And so he introduced me to Doug Wellman. So went to Doug's, went to Doug, spent an afternoon with him in his house. And the first, we spent three hours together. The first two hours, I just told him what I had. And he looked at me respectfully, but skeptically. You know, this is wild. This is crazy. And so I just talked about the story, the first half, the first two hours. Then the third hour, I, I, I brought all the documentation that I had, the manuscript, the medical records, the military records, everything that I had that backed up this story. And Doug said, let me look at these overnight and then let's meet tomorrow at 10. So we went and met the next day at 10. And, and Doug said, OK, I understand you're looking for someone to help you. Inter in integrate this story and I said yes and he said I'll do it and I was shocked to tell you I was shocked and I said what convinced you and he said it was your documentation he said you can't make this stuff up he said it was your documentation that that did it uh, and then we started he and I started interacting and and putting it together there's times though, there was one time I would go to Eva who living in Florida and read the book to her because she wanted to make sure everything was accurate in the book. So I'd go read the book to her and then she'd tell me, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, correct this, this, this. But one time I went and said, Doug, you've got to come with me and meet this lady. You have to meet her. And so I flew in there, he flew in there. We spent a day with her basically a day with her. And Doug actually tried to trick her on some stuff. He tried to pull her off story. He tried to, to do some things that, that was just, you know, would, would pull her off and you couldn't do it. She always came back to the same story. It was never, ever changed. Even words interaction never, ever changed with her. And she, she related a story. She said, one day I was out on the ranch, they called it, uh, uh, Wooded Acres, West of Troy, Alabama, in the middle of nowhere. And a helicopter came over and stopped right, right, hovered right above me. And I waved at them. They waved back. And, and I had a camera, so I took a picture. And a little later on, they went over. There's a clearing area to the south of their acres. It's, he, the guy landed, and Nick went over and interacted with him. And Doug said, You know, I, I can accept everything going on here except that. I can't believe that. It's just too much. It's too much for me. 
And so I went, came back to my house, of which I had kept all these documents and all these pictures that Eva had taken. I had bought boxes and boxes of my own. So I started going through these pictures, seeing, was there a picture of a helicopter? And lo and behold, here it is. So I had the picture of the helicopter. I scanned it, sent it to Doug and said, Doug, you remember when Eva said that she took a picture of the helicopter that day? Well, here it is. <laughs> and Doug said, "It's you, you can't make this stuff up. It's just too wild to consider it any other way than, than being true. But it's totally, totally different than anything the public's ever been told. I think what you guys have uncovered is it's 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 insane. I wish people knew more about Howard Hughes because you would have a large interest of people, at least for my generation. I'm surprised we don't really know about Howard Hughes. I'm surprised that took me to the age of 26 to figure out, oh, my God, there's this eccentric billionaire that lived this life like any Marvel movie or anything you want to say. Uh, but for you, have your perspective or interest in Howard Hughes changed at all after all this? Uh, my... Um... My interest in Howard, of course, ha has increased. I refer to him by first name, like I like I know him, even though I never met him. So my my uh, perspective on Howard has changed because I, I had this huge knowledge base of how he lived, how reclusive he was, what he needed to do to escape, what he did to escape, how he lived afterwards. I've got the whole picture there uh, of it. But it's hard, believe me, it's hard to put together. His last official picture was taken in 1954. And after that, he just basically, I've only seen, I think, one other picture of him after 1954 that is a real picture of Howard Hughes. Um, and that was taken by accident by somebody that, that I saw that, that. So this was a, just a reclusive man who wanted to hide and had the money to do it. Had a lady who loved him, kept a secret. Um, but there's things that what my perspective on this has become. I don't believe anything on the media. <laughs> I just don't believe That's it. a good point. That's a very good point. That There's just so many things there that you don't know what's true or what isn't true. And it's almost like there's more on the media that comes through that's not true or that's spun in some way that is on the edge of edge of unreality. But the public has no idea. The public just has no idea how careful you've got to be on what you see on TV. Well, Mark, I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show. I really do. I'm glad I was able to talk with you and Doug about your book. I think it's fascinating. I'm going to link it in the description for people. But can you tell people where they can find any of your links that you'd like to promote? Probably the best place to buy the book is on Amazon. Just go directly on Amazon, Google, Boxes, Zipfa Like for Howard Hughes. My name's Mark Music, M-U-S-I-C-K. You can throw that at Doug Wellman, W-E-L-L-M-I-N. But pull that up and and read it because it it is a not what you've been told. It's history that you have not been told. And what we have learned since then is there's multiple occurrences of history that are just absolutely wrong, absolutely wrong. And they're still occurring all the time.
Well, Mark, thank you again. And thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank. And stay tuned for our next episode.